see my root system goes back so deeply into radio. The, uh, I was two years old when radio came to birth in America. That's 1922, with the little crystal radios and sitting around my grandma's front room and listening to broadcasts. And I moved to Tucson, Arizona when I was 12, and Chandu the Magician came on. And God almighty, I was just fantastically in love with Chandu the Magician. I have lived most of my life at the top of my voice. It's the only way to live. I can't imagine people not living at the top at a shout and a shriek all the time. And because of radio, it changed my life in many ways. Just listening to all the broadcasts, the early Sherlock Holmes shows, 1930-31, done by G. Washington's Coffee, Eno Crime Club, all those lovely things. The man you're listening to is one of the most celebrated authors of the 20th century, Ray Bradbury. By the spring of 1955, he'd authored more than 100 short stories and one novel, Fahrenheit 451, born out of a collection of earlier works. These stories were published in magazines like Astounding Science Fiction, Street and Smith, Weird Tales, Thrilling Wonder Stories, and the Saturday Evening Post. But I got to Tucson, Arizona, was in the seventh grade, and I had begun to write short stories, and I was under the influence of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Tarzan, and those wonderful Harold Foster drawings every Sunday in the newspaper, beautiful stuff, and it turns out I had fabulous taste because it's still around and it's admired by everyone in the world. The French and the Italians are reprinting all of Harold Foster's beautiful material, and I've been in touch with him the last 30 years, telling him that I love him, and he's a man in his 80s now, and still drawing on occasion. But anyway, got out to Tucson, listened to the radio, Chandu the Magician's on, said to all my friends, I'm going to go down to the radio station and get a job. And I said, oh, come on now, you mean you, you really think you, a 12-year-old boy, can go down and get a job? Have you ever acted on the radio? No. Does your father know anyone there? No. Mother? Any other relatives? No. You mean you're just going to go down there and hang around? They're going to hire you? I said, yeah, I'm going to be irresistible. So I, I went down to the radio station and I emptied out ashtrays and I ran for newspapers and I just kept my nose pressed against the glass and watched. And by God, within two weeks I knew everyone at the station and I was reading the comic strips to the kiddies every Saturday night with a bunch of other kids and I got free passes to uh, all the local movies, King Kong, huh? The Mummy, Dracula, I mean I was living high off the hog, huh? God, isn't that something? It was a combination then of my three great loves, movies, reading comic strips, and being on the radio. Among sci-fi enthusiasts, Bradbury was regarded as one of America's preeminent writers. In April of 1955, NBC staff writer Ernest Canoy was tabbed to adapt one of the sections of Bradbury's Martian Chronicles and The Moon Be Still as Bright for a new audition. The show would be called X minus one. I think radio is great fun, and you could do very fascinating things dramatically in radio because you could be here and there and very quickly in the story. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire.
From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of Astounding Science Fiction, presents... X minus one... Tonight, the Ray Bradbury story entitled, And the Moon Be Still as Bright. The first three expeditions for Mars left Earth in a mushroom of flame, arced through the atmosphere, and finally dwindled to tiny specks in the big eye of the Mount Palomar telescope, and then were lost to sight forever. The prearranged landing signals flashed back to Earth, and then the radios went dead. One after the other, ships had disappeared and were never heard from again. But still, the rockets came. The fourth expedition emerged from the silent gulfs of space, angled down toward the floating red disk of Mars, down into an orbit as the order came to land. The last blast of the bow jets broke red against the blue desert sands and the ship slid to a halt at the edge of a vast city that reflected the icy glare of the moonlight. For a while, all was still. All right, Park Hill. Open the airlock. Hi, sir. Fresh air. Hey, it's cold out here. Who cares? We got here. I thought I'd never hit solid ground again. Hey, how about a fire, Captain Wildy? It's freezing. Later. We have work to do. Oh, smell that air. Why, you could get drunk on it. Say, there's an idea. Why don't we break out a bottle and celebrate? Biggs, there will be no drinking done till we're secured. But we're landed, Captain. Three other expeditions landed and disappeared within 24 hours. Now, we're not relaxing security till we find out what happened to them. What do you mean, maybe Martian? Sender, you're an archaeologist. How old would you say they are? I can't tell till I study them more closely. It's the kind of engineering we couldn't duplicate on Earth. Well, I'm not interested in the architecture now. I want to make sure there's nothing there that might be dangerous. Mr. Hathaway. Yes, sir? I want you and Spender to take a reconnaissance party into the city and find out what's there. We'll set up camp here. No man is to go more than 50 feet from this rocket. And there'll be no celebration till Hathaway and his party report back. In the sea bottoms, the wind stirred along faint vapors. And from the mountains, great stone visages looked upon the silvery rocket and the small fire. The sky was black overhead as the two racing moons threw knife-edged double shadows on the desert. All right, come and get it. Ciao. Hey, what do you got to eat, Jackie? Sort of smothered in cold chicken fat. Good, I thought it was something I couldn't eat. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Captain! Mr. Hathaway's back. Oh, Captain, Captain Wilder. Oh, yes, over here, Mr. Hathaway. Well, most of the city's dead. Spender says it's been dead a good many thousand years, but we found one part about a mile over Troy. What about it? People were living in it last week, sir. People? Martians. Where are they now? Dead. We found bodies, thousands of bodies. They hadn't been dead more than ten days. When did they die of? You won't believe it. What killed them? Chicken pox. Chicken pox? Yes. Where could they get chicken pox? From Earth. Oh, 
than the other rockets did get through. Yes. I don't know what the Martians did to them, but I sure know what they did to the Martians. They gave them chicken pox and wiped them out. They just didn't have any resistance to an Earth disease. Think of it, Captain. A race builds itself for a million years, refines itself, does everything it can to give itself respect and beauty, and then it dies. Of what? It's like saying the Greeks died of mumps or the proud Roman Empire collapsed because of athlete's foot. We didn't even give them a decent excuse for dying. We just gave them chicken pox. Spender, get hold of yourself. You didn't see those bodies, Captain. Yes, I know. It must have been a shock. You need a rest, a little relaxation. The Martians are dead. There's nothing you can do about that now. Hey, you hear that? The Martians are all dead. Come on, let's break out a bottle and hoop it out. How about a case, eh? Good Lord. They have to do that now. Isn't there time later to throw old beer cans into the canals? Bender, you're an idealist. They're not. All they know now is that they're safe. Little shouting won't hurt. You think too much. I was safe on Mars. The first Earth men on Mars. We're going to celebrate. <laughs> Yahoo! X minus one was picked up. The network formed a partnership with the aforementioned sci-fi magazines to choose stories for adaptation. The magazines would plug the show, and the show would mention the magazine during the introduction. X minus one debuted on Sunday, April 24, 1955. Its scheduling was erratic. NBC had been long known for impatience with new programs. If a series wasn't generating big numbers and sponsors straight away, NBC often dropped or moved the show. Unfairly, the onus was on Street and Smith and their magazines to make X-1 profitable. By September 5, 1957, the show was airing Thursday evenings at 8.05 p.m. Eastern Time. It was NBC's only dramatic offering of the evening. Fittingly, the episode was called Saucer of Loneliness. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. the far horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. Tonight, Saucer of Loneliness by Theodore Sturgeon. But first, hear this. Hello, I'm Dorothy Olson, singing school teacher on NBC's big weekday musical show, Bandstand. But right now, I'd like to talk to you parents. I'd like to ask you a few questions as you're getting ready to send your youngsters back to school. Are you helping your child get the most out of his school? Do you make his home conditions favorable enough for him to do his homework? Do you show an interest in his schoolwork? Remember, your child's success in school and later on in life 
depends to a large degree on your attitude towards his schooling today. And there's another important thing. Everyone needs a good send-off in the morning, and that goes for children, too. Be sure your children have a substantial breakfast and a cheery goodbye before they head for school each day. Remember, you can't expect your child to do it all himself. Encourage him in his schooling, both in your attitude and in your actions as he goes back to school this fall. Now, X minus one. The story, Saucer of Loneliness, by Theodore Sturgeon. My name is Jason Benaides. I'm a newspaper reporter, 31 years old. I write poetry, but I don't show it to anybody because they might laugh. The things I write about are very important to me. I was an only child and never went much with girls because I'm too ugly and too sensitive and they used to hurt me. I live alone. It isn't much fun. I'm not painting this picture of myself to get sympathy. I don't need it. But it's important you should know the kind of person I am. Otherwise, you won't understand what I'm going to tell you about. Tonight, the 25th of June, 1962. I was down on the beach. There was a girl out there in the surf, alone, struggling. I plunged in after her, got her, brought her ashore, and carried her where a dune was between us and the water. Then I rubbed her wrists. She had a pale, beautiful face with ancient bottomless blue eyes. She opened them and looked at me after a moment. It's all, it's all right now. Here, put my coat over you. Why couldn't you leave me alone? I couldn't, I couldn't. Why? Because it's important to me. I, I suppose you want to know why I did it. No, no, I know. Oh, how could you know? Maybe I know what it means to be lonely. Oh, oh that. That's it, isn't it? Oh, Oh, I don't know. I, just, I just, don't, don't be afraid. I've, I've been looking for you for a long time. Looking for me? All my life. How did you know? I don't believe it's you. It's true. I found your message. You found my message? Yes. Oh. See, you see, there's nothing to be afraid of. Not anymore. Just, just rest. Yes. I, I, I'd like to rest for a while. She didn't remember it, of course, but I was one of the reporters who had covered the story when it first happened, five years ago. I'll never forget that day. I was working the police blotter. It was a quiet summer afternoon when they brought her in. Two big cops in blue uniform. All right. Come on now, girlie. Come on. All right. We understand. Take it easy now. Please, just let me go. Disturbing the peace. This that Central Park call? Yeah, this is it. I thought you radioed there was a near riot up there. Well, you should have seen the place. All right, give me the report. Well, me and Bennett got up there. There was a mob of people all surrounding this girl, see? So we bust through, and there, in the middle of maybe 600 people, she's lying there, sort of, uh, in a faint. Mm -hmm. I asked a couple of people what the difficulty was. They tell me it's a flying saucer, you see? So I tell uh, what? The flying saucer. What is it, Miss Gag? It happened. It did, huh? Suppose you tell me your version. Well, I was standing in the park, and I looked up, and, and there it was. Describe it. Well, it was beautiful. It, it was golden with a, with a dusty finish like, well, like an unripe Concord grape. And 
it made a faint sound, a chord of two tones, and it circled over my head like some great round hummingbird. Go on. Well, other people must have seen it because they were all looking at me and pointing, and I saw one man cross himself, and, and then it came down and touched me and, and spoke to me. This flying saucer spoke to you? Yes. Um, just what did it say to you? I said, what did it say? I, I, I can't tell you. A secret, huh? Yes. I see. Connolly, this girl's for Bellevue. Well, Sergeant, the plain fact is that it happened just like that. Ten witnesses all agree it did. Are you trying to tell me there was such a thing as this Warren hummingbird of a saucer? Oh, there was that, Sergeant. And just how do you know, Connolly? We got the thing out in a squad car. Bennett is bringing it in right now, see? About 36 inches across it is and covered with strange markings. Holy mackerel, did you call the bomb squad? I didn't think of it. Well, think of it, man. This may be some kind of atomic weapon the Reds are sending over. I'll turn it over to ballistics. Never mind about ballistics. Call the FBI. Tell them what we got. X-minus one and Saucer of Loneliness. Now, miss, let me be very frank. I'm not a policeman. I'm a security agent. That means I deal with problems that affect the security of our country. Do you understand? Yes. Now, we've examined this flying saucer enough to know it is not of American manufacture. It also possesses an extremely high radioactive count. That means it was in an area where radioactive materials are in great abundance, such as an area where atom bombs are made. That's why we want to know the message you received from the saucer. There was no message. You just made it up? Yes. I'm afraid you're lying. There is a communications device on the saucer, and many people heard it make some sound as it touched you. Please, just leave me alone. All you have to do is tell us what the saucer said, and you can go home, and we won't ever bother you again. No. Well, gentlemen, we'll get nothing out of her. I don't believe she really knows what that humming noise was. You better have a psychiatrist examine her. We spent a good deal of time on past Breaking Walls episodes discussing Hollywood Radio's famed actors. There was a concurrent, equally talented group of New York actors, like Bob Hastings, those were great days. Radio actors were awfully good, very good, and a lot of them came out here and did well. Frank Lovejoy, Mason Adams now, did Lou Grant. Of course, I go back to Arnold Moss, Everett Sloan, all oh, the people like Bill Quinn, the people actors. I worked with in radio, Lucille Wall. Big New York contingent. Oh, yeah, yes. A lot of those. Uh, yes. I, a lot of them New York. I knew some of the Chicago people. Fran Carlin, I mm -hmm. think, was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Casey Adams, do those names mean anything yes, to you? Yes, Vivian Smolin. Vi oh, well, Vivian, I knew very, very yes. well. Vivian was on Our Bond, the thing with Madge Tucker. Sharita Bauer, who had, yes. uh, oh, I knew, we grew up together. Legendary lady oh, yes, yes. soap operas. Yes, because I think Guiding Light probably was one of the longest. But she except was in for radio search. and then moved she into TV. She went from the radio it, yeah. to the TV and mm -hmm. passed away a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Very dear friend. As a matter of fact, I spoke to her. I used to call her when she was ill. But uh, as you know, I mean, you research it all. They're wonderful actors. You appeared on many other radio broadcasts as well. I oh. think you must have done some things on uh, 
NBC later had a science fiction series called X Minus One. Ah, yes, did a number of those. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I think the director, there was Harry Junkin and then Danny Sutter, who I think was from Chicago mm -hmm. originally and had been a radio actor in Chicago, directed many of them that I did. But that was a very interesting show. Bob Hastings spoke of Arnold Moss. Incidentally, uh, I played a great many of the heavies in radio. I got killed regularly four or five times a week. And uh, when these things were happening, my son was then about two, two and a half years old, and he would listen. We had a nurse at the time taking care of Jeff, and she would tell my wife to get me immediately before I left the station to call home to assure Jeff that I was all right, that I really hadn't been killed. There was Jan Minor. Whoever was out of his way when it's time for him to speak, he'd get to that side of the mic because mm -hmm. they were directional mics, I guess you call them. Well, both sides worked. But he'd have to move over because we, well, we worked in front of that microphone with arms flinging. And yeah. many times your arm would fling and the script would go <laughs> flying all over the studio and you'd have to run to the other side to read off the, the other person's script. John Gibson. I don't think I'm second to anybody in volume of shows as an actor. I do believe that I have done somewhere over 10,000 radio shows, or appearances if you want to call them, or whatever, and I am still very nervous. People assume that radio was comparatively easy, as I do, standing in a well-lighted studio with a nice script in front of you and all you have to do is read the lines. Right. But you can say some awfully strange things by mistake. <laughs> Your tongue can get twisted. As you know, there have been some classic. <laughs> I begin to get the picture. <laughs> Joe Julian. You were involved with soaps, weren't you, Joe? Oh, yes. I Name it, I probably was on it. One of the shows that you were on for a long period of time was Lorenzo Jones. What part did you play? Oh, I played part of Sandy. He was a young kid who lived next door to Lorenzo and worshipped Lorenzo. Well, I think the best soap opera on the air. It certainly was the funniest. I think you'll have to agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> it had genuine humor and wit, charm. The character of Lorenzo was a would-be inventor. He was always inventing things that were almost practical, but not quite. Yeah. Like yeah. a three-spout teapot for strong, weak, and medium tea. <laughs> <laughs> Once he invented a gadget for his automobile, he had a recording thing in it so that if you went over a certain speed limit, a voice would come snarling out of the loudspeaker saying, Take it easy, butt! <laughs> Jackson Beck. You're one of that breed that doubled as uh, actor and radio announcer. Which were you applying for when you were making those rounds? I applied. Originally, I started out as an actor. Some impersonations, which I no longer do, of people you never heard of anyway because they're all dead <laughs> and gone 30 years. But I've always figured out announcing was just another facet of acting anyway. You act the part of a salesman, and that's what announcing really is. Mandel Kramer. Nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor at NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non-existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's, and you kind of got the word there. It was all passed around. Everybody congregated there, and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another, because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. But radio was really the, my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days, before your time, Dick, when there was a, a relatively small 
number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time. You could work, and did work, seven days a week. Another oft-heavy was Larry Haynes. The one thing about radio, which is different than television, was that you had a certain anonymity, I believe is the word, where you could be on ten shows a day and walk down Broadway in 42nd and nobody would recognize you. Did anybody ever recognize you because of your voice, yes. you know, in social? Uh, any, any? As a matter of fact, quite recently I was shocked. I almost forgot what I was doing. I was placing a call and at a booth. I dialed the operator and asked for a number, and she said, yes, just one moment, Mr. Haynes. No I almost felt it wrong. <laughs> I would have been less surprised if she had said, Mr. Bergman. <laughs> well, apparently she was an old radio fan. Yeah, I guess so. But that amazed me. That really amazed me. And of course, the husband-wife team of Mary Jane Higby and Guy Sorrell. Mary Jane, was there any feeling, any difference in feeling on the part of the actor or actress in doing a nighttime show such as Lux or Perry Mason from a daytime show, did it seem more important to you in oh, any way? Yes, I don't think anyone took the daytime serials, or very few people took them seriously. The first serious moment might be when you counted the pages of your script to be sure they were in the right order just before you went on the air. There was a marked difference between a beginner in radio and one who'd been at it a long time. The beginner would look through his pages to see if he was in a lot of the script, and he was in a lot of the script, he was delighted. Whereas the old-timer would look through and said, oh, I'm through on page one, isn't that nice? <laughs> because he was getting paid just as much. <laughs> then, of course, the nighttime shows, I used to do a lot of cavalcades, Cavalcade of America. That, of course, was, a, I suppose, the plushiest of them all. The actors would all wear dinner jackets, tuxedos, evening dresses, and it was a very elaborate production with an audience and everything, and lights and everything else. There was one actor who, usually in radio, always marked his script, because we all marked our scripts, we made cuts in pencil or pen, and he was accustomed to making his cuts with a red pencil, and uh, he'd never been on the cavalcade before. He was on the air, and suddenly the lights went down, and red lights came up on the stage. <laughs> oh, I can guess what would happen then. Well, you know what happened. <laughs> the red lights just drained all the red from his script. He didn't know what was cut, what wasn't cut. He couldn't see his markings. He was in a mess. He finally had to drop his script completely and read over somebody else's shoulder. These are just some of the people who appeared on countless shows originating from New York during radio's golden age. Many of them were able to make the transition to TV, Many others weren't. Once X-1 signed off at 8.30, Nightline signed on for 90 minutes. News had become more valuable than drama in prime time. X-1 would be canceled after the January 9th, 1958 broadcast. They took her to the city hospital and placed her in a guarded room. Whenever the door opened, she could see the policeman outside. The door opened quite often. There were a lot of important people, some in army uniforms who came up from Washington just to see her and talk to her. A few days later, she was released from the hospital and returned to court to be tried on the disorderly conduct charge. They found her guilty and fined her $15 and turned her loose. When she walked out of the courtroom, she was handed a subpoena to appear before a congressional committee in a private session. She answered all their questions except one. My newspaper sent me to cover the hearing. Now, young lady, 
I want to remind you that I am a senator of the United States and empowered by the people of this country to ask questions relating to matters of security. Do you understand? Yes. Your name is Janet Boyce, is it not? I told you that. Now, this flying saucer, you, you said it talked to you. You did say that, didn't you? Yes. And then you denied it? Yes. Why? Because I was tired of answering questions. Young woman, let me put something to you squarely. Uh, by the way, I think if there are members of the press here, I can divulge a rather spectacular piece of information to you. <clears throat> this flying saucer has been thoroughly examined and analyzed. And I wish to inform the people of this great nation that it definitely, I repeat, it definitely did not originate on this planet. The furor was fantastic, and the contempt trial that followed was spectacular. She was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Six months ago, she was released. I found out she'd gotten a job cleaning at night in offices and stores down near the beachfront. There weren't many to clean, but that meant there weren't many people to remember her face from the newspapers. I tracked her down and caught up with her in a one-armed coffee joint about four in the morning. Uh, excuse me, miss. Mind, uh, mind if I sit here? No. Which are you, security, newspapers, or just somebody out for a good time? You're pretty bitter, aren't you? Shouldn't I be? I guess you should. Well, my name's uh, Jason Benaides. I'm with a newspaper. Well, it's been nice meeting you. I have to go now. Just a minute. Now, please. Look, just... look, look. I, I can't blame you. Please tell me how it's been. So you can write about it? I promise you I won't write anything you don't want me to write. Okay. You want to know how it's been? I'll tell you. Right after I got out of jail, I met a man at a restaurant. A nice man. He asked me for a date. I spent every cent I had on a red handbag to go with my red shoes. And I was very excited about the date. We went to a movie. Afterward, he didn't even try to kiss me or anything. He just wanted to know what the flying saucer had told me. Oh, I didn't say anything. I just went home and cried all night. That was it? Oh, no. I had another date. I get pretty lonely. This time, they arrested the man I was with. He was a Russian agent. I'm sorry. Now will you go away and leave me alone? Yes. Aren't you going to ask me the big question? No. Everybody does. Not me. Oh, you will sooner or later. Maybe. Look, can I take you home? No. Can I see you again? Look, please, I just... Please, please. Oh, I don't know. I'm afraid to let myself like anyone. Try me. Make it your last chance. Trust me. Will you? I'm not sure. Maybe? Maybe. I'll wait here for you tomorrow night. All right. The next night, I went back to the coffee joint to wait for her. I knew she got through about four in the morning, and... I got there about 15 minutes early. Mr. Benaides? Yeah. Say, you're the 
Chief of security section, aren't you? You have a good memory. You mind if I sit down? Well, I'm, I'm expecting somebody. Yes, I know. Oh, I see. I'd like to talk to you. All right. Go ahead. You probably know that we've been trying to gain the confidence of this girl for some years now. Yes. We have reason to believe that this girl is a courier for some alien power. On what do you base that? Well, there was the incident of the saucer, of course. We've definitely established that it came from some other planet. And recently, she's been throwing messages inside bottles into the ocean. What sort of messages? They're always the same. I have one right here. You're welcome to read it and see if it makes any sense. We've had every decoding expert in the service trying to break it, but we can't seem to find the key. Hmm, I see. She's thrown literally hundreds of these messages and bottles into the sea. We've got many of them, but not all, naturally. What we're most interested in is locating the contact. Naturally. That's where you fit in. We'd like you to gain this girl's confidence even further. Try to find out just what these messages mean. And beyond that, what the saucer said to her. You'll be doing us a favor. And your country a great service. You're certain this is some subversive activity on her part? How else can you explain the fact that she won't tell us her secret? Maybe because it's hers. Everybody has a right to have something of his own. Are you trying to tell me that you won't cooperate? I didn't say that. I'd like to remind you, Mr. Beniades, that you have a duty to us. I know that. I also have a duty to myself and to God. Now, if you'll excuse me. I folded the bottle message and put it in my pocket and waited for it to show up. The minutes went by and the hours, then I knew she wasn't coming. Or she had come and seen me with the chief and changed her mind. That's when I left the cafe and walked down to the beach. That's when I had dragged her out of the surf before she could follow one of her bottles into the water. Oh, how, how do you feel now? Uh, you cold? Why should you care? Well, I do. Is that why you were sitting with the security chief in the cafe? Look, I didn't arrange that meeting. He asked me to spy on you. I suppose he told you about the bottles. Yes. <laughs> oh, I wonder how much of the taxpayers' money they've spent gathering them up. What they wanted was a new weapon, you see. Some super scientific, super science from some alien super race. <laughs> science, that's all they think of. Well, it's pretty important. Would it have ever occurred to them that this super race from another planet might have super feelings or, or super longings or super loneliness? Oh, oh no, all they think about is weapons. Well, isn't it time you asked me what the saucer said? No, no. Well, they all ask me. I don't have to ask you. I know. You know? Yeah. Let me read it to you. There is in certain living souls a quality of loneliness unspeakable. So great it must be shared, as company is shared by lesser beings. Such a loneliness is mine. So know by this that in immensity there is one lonelier than you. How did you know? Well, it's the message you put in the bottles. The same message that some lonely strange being in some other world put into a bottle. Only his bottle was a flying saucer and sent across space to you. You knew. I'm lonely, too. Look at me. I've never had the love of a woman. They, they think I'm pretty ugly. I have beautiful thoughts in my head, but I write trash. 
I have this nose. Oh, you're not ugly. You know, I... I don't feel ugly right now. Say it again. The message from the saucer. Know by this... that in immensity... there is one lonelier than you. I wonder if... whoever first wrote it has found someone. I think perhaps he has. Fred Collins speaking, and I'll have another word for you about X minus one in a moment. I like to look deep into the human heart with my camera. So speaks Margaret Burke White one of the outstanding photographers of our time. Perhaps you remember one of her favorite pictures, the tremendously moving photograph of two South African gold miners sweltering in dank airlessness deep under Africa's green hills. We agree with Miss White that all the sorrow of mankind is in the miners' eyes. And what if those miners could speak? What is the story behind their sorrow? This is the objective of the program we call Life and the World, to add new dimensions in sound to the picture stories in each week's issue of Life magazine, to bring you the actual voices of the people most intimately associated with stories of human interest gathered from the four corners of the earth. This is Frank Blair inviting you to keep a rendezvous with life and the world every weeknight over most of these NBC stations. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features the Gordon R. Dixon short story, Robots Are Nice. To Jim Harvey, at least, robots weren't the least bit nice. He had a feeling they had something up their sleeve valves, and in time he found out what it was. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, X-1 has brought you Saucer of Loneliness, a story written by Theodore Sturgeon and adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Featured in our cast were Lynn Cook as Jason Beniades and Lydia Bruce as the girl. Others in our cast were Joseph Bell, Harvey Hayes, Ross Martin, and Roger DeCoven. This is Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by George Vutsas and is an NBC Radio Network production. You'll be on the right line for exciting nighttime entertainment when you hear Nightline tonight over most of these NBC stations.